Welcome back. I know it's been a minute. I've been doing some stuff, doing some stuff and some things, but I'm keeping it creepy and I'm keeping it hydrated, as should you. Have you drank some water today? I think you should. Turns out our bodies are more than 70% water and your brain doesn't function very well when it's dehydrated. I have to remind myself of this all the time because I'm neurospicy and I tend to forget about anything that isn't in front of me immediately. <laughs> Anyways, let's learn about Sarah Bernhardt. I thought she would be a great person to talk about because she's got a fascinating life that involves a coffin and sleeping in said coffin right up my alley, right? I thought she'd be a great subject to have a little podcast on. If you don't know about her, you're about to. And all of the amazing things that she has done and been through and all of the people that she has gone forth and inspired, including me, this woman is iconic. Sarah Bernhardt, this woman slept in her own coffin or has been said to sleep in her own coffin. They say that myth was her currency and it served her well. Her story is fantastic. It's a little odd, a little spooky, and it's queer, which is why I decided to do an episode on her. The idea for her to become an actress actually came from her mother's lover, who was the illegitimate half-brother of Napoleon III. His name was Charles Duc de Mornay. Morny? Morny? I'm going to butcher a lot of these French names. I'm so sorry because I have a French name and I should know better, but I don't. So Charles Duc de Morny suggested 16-year-old Sarah had a temperament better suited for theater instead of becoming a nun because turns out Sarah was in a convent trying to become a nun initially as a child, which is super interesting because of the way her life actually played out. Um... After that was suggested, they put her into different theater schools, and she actually did really terrible. She did absolutely awful. And this guy, Morney, had to use his influence just to keep her in school, and she ended up going to a really great, prestigious French school. So Sarah was one of the most publicized and the richest actress at the close of the 19th century. She was more than just an actress, too. She was one of the first celebrities, a businesswoman, a fashion icon, a sculptor, a theater director. They call her a visionary. She was a courtesan, and she pushed gender boundaries. Love her. Everything I've learned about this chick, I fucking adore. The sass was there. The drama was there. The myth was there. She had this amazing idea where if she just kind of told little white lies about herself, the media would go crazy about it, and then it would just make her even more famous. So many celebrities do that today. So she played in at least 70 roles in 125 plays over the course of her career, both female and male. She was best known for her dramatic death scenes, makes me love her even more, and after losing a leg, she used a wooden one and continued an active role on stage. From what I read, she did have a wooden leg, but most of the time she took roles where she could hide the fact that she was missing a leg by either sitting down or having a prop in front of it. In 1960, Sarah was honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, so you can go see it. In 2001, Martha Stewart even shared a recipe for Sarah Barnhart cookies, claiming that they are as multi-layered as her namesake. Sarah, iconic. She wanted everything that was associated with the good life, which includes an exotic pet collection. So I'm all for animals' rights, and I'm not siding with Sarah when I talk about this. Basically, her pet collection was very exotic, and it included a boa constrictor, a lion, a parrot, a puma, two horses, a monkey named Darwin, and an alligator named Al Gaga, 
who she served milk and champagne, which ultimately sent him to an early grave. Pretty unfortunate. But the more I learn about this woman, I'm so fascinated. Also, she was amused to many, including Oscar Wilde, Ugh. Edmund Rodston, and Marcel Proust. It said that she evolved from muse to maker and developed talents in writing, painting, and sculpture. Louise Mbema, an expressionist painter, with whom Sarah had her most notable same-sex affair, yes, was a fan of her work. In 2017, a white marble relief of Ophelia made and signed by Barnhart sold at an auction for $385,000 and $444. So there's art of hers out there still, and I'll be posting some of that on my Instagram if you want to see. I have this excellent excerpt from the book, Sarah Barnhart, My Exotic Life, which was written by San Casamali. Um, this is Sarah basically talking about if she did or did not have sex in this coffin because she had built such a mystical story around this coffin that people believed she was fully sleeping in it every night so that she could embrace death. Like there were so many things that were coming up in the media about Sarah and her coffin. So this excerpt is absolutely fantastic and shows you her insight to why she started that myth. And um, she goes in to talk about if she did or did not actually sleep in the coffin. This is the excerpt from the book. And I will be speaking as though I am Sarah herself. So there are some inappropriate words in this story, and I will be replacing them with the word blank, and then you can just fill that in with your imagination. Okay, here we go. A Spanish friend of Tante Rosine showed me a magazine which had devoted a good few pages to me and my art. There was a piece in it by no less than the Cuban national hero, the poet Jose Marti, in which he wrote about how he had looked inside my soul. No French author ever quite managed to catch its essence quite like the Cuban had, and after reading that article, my fascination for Cuba was only reinforced. I will try to quote from memory what he said. She is half goddess, half serpent. Her body is full of grace and abandoned. When possessed by the demon of tragedy, the strength and nobility gushing out of her is so intense, one can almost touch it. Senora Bernhardt has, with the sole use of her dainty femininity, snatched from fate the scepter and the orb of French theater. Her genius lies in her will, her golden voice ever sings, her arms command, and her presence demands admiration. She goes on to say, How could a simple woman like me, full of vanity, resist the urge to visit a place where I am regarded as half-goddess and half-serpent? I don't blame you. I would too. It was in January 1887 that I embarked on the English ship D for Havana, Cuba, from Mexico. From the moment I first glanced at its shores, I was convinced that my imaginings had not been far from reality. I was lodging at the Hotel Petit with my 80 suitcases and my menagerie. It should be clear that it could not have been that small. Still, it was comfortable. I must add, I had also brought my beloved coffin with me. Why a coffin? The world has always wanted to know, and I will now reveal the secret. When I became an actress, I was so ambitious. I saw myself as the best and most famous of my time, in France at least. Of course, it turned out that I became the biggest star in the firmament, in the whole world, and for all times, I had been told. I did not ask for much, but I am grateful. 
I decided early on to nurture a reputation for eccentricity. Although Edward Jarrett knew a thing or two about publicity stunts, there was still much he could learn from me. Ergo, the coffin. These strange notions appear to me in a flash just before I close my eyes at night, or just before I promptly wake up. A hat with a stuffed bat as a motif, silk trousers, and a costume for doing my sculpture in. Jumping on ice floes in Canada, going for a swim in Copacabana with the flimsiest of swimming costume. Can you beat any of these eccentricities? The last cause is seismic change in their published mores. I ordered my first coffin from a dear old carpenter in Belleville. Belleville. I ordered my first coffin from a dear old carpenter in Belleville. At first, I used it as an item of furniture likely to attract attention and become a talking point. After another brainwave, I had it fitted with a velvet lining and claimed falsely that I slept in it. When asked for a reason, I came out with the absurd explanation that when I had to die on stage, I slept in the sarcophagus to put me in the mood. I was amazed at how many people swallowed that crazy notion. The first time I had to sleep in it, as a dare, I was uncomfortable and had to move to a proper bed in the middle of the night. Later, when my poor Jeanne was dying, I got her moved to my rather small apartment so that I could care for her. I did place the pine box beside her bed and slept there, but I did this out of necessity. My room was too small for two beds, and I wanted to be able to attend to her as she woke up in the middle of the night. I lugged the coffin all over the world, as I never travel with less than 60 suitcases. Again, something quite unnecessary, but which has enhanced my reputation for extravagance and eccentricity. I thought that I might as well bring my menagerie and the box. This kept the press of the world fascinated and amused, and I am mighty glad it did. Now for the big question. Have I really fucked in the coffin? In Havana, I occupied the whole third floor of the Hotel Petit. She goes on to talk about how she had 15 performances, and that's why she took over the whole third floor of the Hotel Petit. And as it turns out, Luis Manzantini, Spain's most famous choreador, was in the audience watching her. She goes on to say, The power of my performance caused him to weep buckets of tears. Twelve years my junior, he was born and grew up in Italy to an Italian engineer father and a Basque mother. He must have been a natural, for in no time he had risen to the position of number one matador in Spain. It was during one of his tours which coincided with my own. It was during one of his tours which coincided with my own visit to the island that he first saw me and fell madly in love with me. The whole of Havana was covered with posters advertising the two shows, mine and Mazantini's. My love for animals will never have permitted me to watch someone kill the defenseless bulls. But the torero sent me flowers and a note to the Hotel Petit. He wrote in excellent French that my performance at the La Dame had made such an impression on him, at least he could do to repay me was to dedicate a bull's ear to me. I wasn't even sure what that meant. Was I expected to cook it and eat it? But in those days, my heart and head were ruled by vanity, and I could not resist. As I had admitted before, I am a Republican who becomes weak at the knees in front of royalty. Anyway, I made up my mind to go on Saturday. Lewis is incredibly dashing in his tight-fitting costume, which enhanced all the litheness of his exterior. I have always found a small, sharply ass to be a man's biggest asset. God, I love her. The sight of him produced an immediate libidinous effect upon me. The moment he entered the arena, he seemed to be scanning the terraces, and I had no doubt that he was trying to locate me. When he did, he took two steps backwards, and removing his Montera, 
flourished it greatly with an elegant gesture and bowed to me. All heads turned to see who he was paying homage to, and I must admit to a little frisson of pride. The bowl was let into the arena and the tussle between man and beast started. I had no understanding of the process, but marveled at the movements of both protagonists. The way in which he allowed the bowl to approach him before swerving was very popular with the aficionados. Anyway, he killed four bulls that day. We're not getting into the gory details, but yes, he killed four bulls that day. He did it in a very dramatic fashion, and she was very impressed. She goes on to say, I was in all states at the end, and when he came to escort me downstairs to see the various quarters, I told him that I was beginning to feel uneasy. Could we go to my hotel instead, I said, and he beamed with a smile at me. The first thing that caught his attention was my pink coffin, and he asked me about it. I replied with the usual half-truths, as I had told reporters. It helps me understand the tragic figures that I specialize in. Also, the constant presence of the box reconciles me to my mortality. He asked whether I was frightened of death, and I said, I love life, but no, death holds no terror for me. It means you've got a soul of a matador, he exclaimed. He too said that he wanted to have a coffin at home for the same reason as me. He then asked me, have you made love in it? I admitted that the idea had occurred to me, but seeing how narrow it was, I decided that it would not be much fun. I had therefore declined the opportunity. He shook his head and said, no, we both have slim waists, and you, as an actress, and I, as a toreador, are masters of movement. I assure you that it will not only be possible, but we will enjoy it all the more. Let us try. And I was game. In the most natural manner we had been holding and caressing each other, he undressed me completely, and as my blank was already blank, I hopped into the coffin and lay there on my back. He tut-tutted. He got rid of his own clothes, gently lifted me out, went into the box first, and positioned me on top. Amazingly, we fit in quite well. I have often thought about every time I blink, at a certain point I die only to be resurrected after an orgasm. Being resurrected in a coffin often looks attractive. Luis made sure that our privates were in contact and with his strong arms, which he had paid to four bulls earlier, he slid me up and down. It goes into very juicy details here, and you're going to have to buy the book to really um, get that because I don't think I can say that on a podcast. She goes on to say, We enjoyed the episode, and without exchanging a word or a signal, he lifted me by my waist and brought me back down with the same precision in which he performed his blank. He went straight in me like his sword into the bull's heart. Suddenly, for the first time, I became aware of the parrot squawking, as if they were enjoying the sight. It was a thoroughly delightful happening in which I will never forget. Thank you, Lewis. I think it's safe to say that Sarah was truly an extraordinary character. The stories that carried her through her life still live on today. It's hard to decide if anything that you read is true about her or if she made it up in some way, but it seems like her life was full of eccentricities. <laughs> I just love saying it that way. Honestly, an iconic character who was also queer. I love everything about her that I've learned so far. I've also read that she believed in ghosts couldn't find anything that was for sure about her having any interaction with ghosts, but it is said that she really enjoyed the paranormal. A little insight into Sarah Bernhardt's queer life, she did have a notable relationship with the artist Louisa Bema, who was known as a famous lesbian. She first received widespread recognition for her paintings when she displayed her very first portrait of Sarah Bernhardt. So she was a muse turned lover, which is so fantastic. 
She did mainly oil portraits and watercolors. It's also noted that a big influence of hers was a fellow lesbian artist, Rosa Bonaire. So historians have tried to paint Louise and Sarah as simply incredibly close friends, but it is undeniable, honestly, that they were lovers. The women were both noted as bohemian eccentrics in polite society. So to paint a picture of Louise, she typically wore men's suits and smoked a cigar wherever she went. So it was no surprise that those two became inseparable. Most of the media you find will have to do with them being close friends because that's just what the media did back then. But we all know. We all know. (laughs) She was a very successful independent painter and a butch lesbian who frequently showed gender nonconforming women in her work, which ties back to Sarah Bernhardt, who actively took roles as both feminine and masculine on stage. Louise and Sarah stayed together until Sarah's death in 1923, and ever since Louise's own death on July 10th, 1927, she's been remembered as one of the most groundbreaking early 20th century new women. Can you believe it's almost Halloween? And being that it's almost Halloween, it seemed fitting to start covering some stories about famous characters with coffins. This has inspired me to go to Home Depot and buy some wood and make my own coffin just to like hang out in. I absolutely am going to do it, and I'll post pictures. (laughs) Hope you all have a creepy and fantastic week ahead. Love you all. Bye.